Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes at soothing decibels. I'm your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 93. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like early 2000s Jessica Alba, Chuck Norris's mustache, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's comedic range. No quote too minor, no side plot too small. There's a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. Before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld-level daily observation. So I'm on hot streak right now. This is the fourth pod in five days. Woo! Feels good. Juices are flowing. Just, uh, I've been listening to a lot of great pods too. Maybe that's my inspiration. I've been listening to the Book of Basketball pods, Bill Simmons. And he's just talking about like some of the best 10, 15 uh, basketball players of all time. So there's like a two-hour one in Allen Iverson I listened to. I gobbled up a hour and a half one about Shaquille O'Neal today. And it just got me thinking. I was just fired up because it was just like war stories about how cool they were and like how kind of unique they were to the game and how they're just loved and revered still. And I thought about it. You couldn't really have two more contrasting guys. Like, But both of them are gods. You know, Allen Iverson was like 5'10" maybe 180 pounds and would attack the basket with viciousness and was like partier off the court, crazy, but on the court, like most loyal teammate, but also really selfish would shoot eight for 27. And Shaq was like, you know, the biggest, strongest, most intimidating dude, but he didn't really care that much about the game. He kind of cared about life around the game more. So just really contrasting dudes. And it just showed the beauty of sports. Like, all the stories of sports are stranger than fiction. Like I couldn't create a guy who looked like Shaq or looked like Allen Iverson in my wildest dreams. And here they are in front of me. And, you know, I got to experience them. And I mean, like if you think about Shaq, like breaking the backboard or him and Kobe just feuding over who had supremacy, like John and uh, like John Lennon and Paul McCartney fighting over like who ran the Beatles, you know, that kind of stuff. And I mean, like he had terrible movies too. I mean, he made Kazam, which I loved where he was a giant genie or Steel, which was terrible. I couldn't even love that where he played kind of a John Henry made a Steel superhero. It's like Shaq, you're seven foot one, 300 pounds. And like no costume is going to cover up who you are. I'm sorry. But, uh, and also my favorite part about Shaq is he, when they did the MTV Cribs of his, definitely my favorite MTV Cribs. He had a 20 foot round bed just to make himself feel small. Or he had a giant office like he created it so he he got to feel little, like he was five foot four, like he had to reach for things. Like I love that that's what he like thought about, and that's what his uh that's what his brain went to. Or like Allen Iverson partying for three days straight, or his high school football that he was as good as Michael Vick in kind of the Virginia high school uh, arena and kind of lore. That when he uh, when he was on the cover of Hoops magazine like his second year, they airbrushed his tattoos, and it just seems like that seems like something out of a movie. And Alan Iverson is like, even though he's made over $200 million in his career, he's broke for under a million dollars in uh, net worth. And he's waiting for a trust fund to kick in when he's a little older. And I think he was on American Dad last year for like five seconds. I mean, all these stories are crazy and random and kind of just thrown together. But that's like the beauty of sports. It's like you can't make it up. It's too weird to believe. And it made me think about the beauty of sports movies. And I always I'm a sucker. I think I get it from my dad. I always cry during sports movies during like. During, I always over, I mean, I always over invest. And like, you, if you realize, if you think about the best sports movies, the best ones are never about the best players or the biggest game. It's always like second, third, last shot, you know, down on their luck guy who gets one last go at it. Washed up players, rookies who don't know any better who could get burned. It's never like the 98 Bulls. You're not following Michael Jordan in a great sports movie or Tom Brady's Patriots. It's just not 
fun. You want the underdog. We want to root for someone small. And that's the magic. You know, I mean, that's what sports gives us. And the, the thing that sports movies give more than any other movie is the chill moment. Bill Simmons said this too. It's like, you got to have that chill moment. It's either a speech or a montage or a turning the corner moment where someone realizes like the team's more important than them, like major unexpected death or loss. Like sports are perfect. And I'm, I'm surprised there aren't more great sports movies. I was kind of like looking through them all. It's like, there's maybe like 25, 30 great sports movies. I feel like there should be more. They should just keep churning them out and hopefully hitting them. But I guess it's hard to have convincing sports, great acting as a combination. So, I mean, I don't know why there's not more great sports movies, but I mean, there's only 25, 30 when I saw. So I'm going to give my top 10 best sports movies ever ranked. And yes, you're going to disagree with most of this, but I don't care because this is my personal ranking of my enjoyment and my inspiration and my just laughter and my, you know, belief in the human spirit that I get from these movies. And one honorable mention, any given Sunday, not a great movie. Jamie Foxx is great. The whole movie's a little bit Oliver Stone bloated, you know, too, like looking like gladiators, military, but they're playing football. I mean, someone's eye falls out on one of, in one of the games. It's crazy. Like he's definitely doing like a Vietnam reenactment of football, but the Al Pacino speech, the pregame speech, the uh, peace with inches speech. I could listen to that six days a week, seven times on Sunday. I used to listen to it before, like pre-gaming, before we went out in like early 20s to like fire everybody up. And I mean, I don't have a good Pacino, but it's like, I don't know what else to tell you. Three minutes to the biggest battle of our personal lives. So either we heal now as a team or we're going to crumble inch by inch, play by play till we're through. God, I love that speech. And like, it's got the little tingy kind of guitar music in the background. And Jamie Foxx is slowly coming around. Willie Beeman's like, yeah, you know what? I'll follow this guy into battle. And so that that's a great speech about life, about football, about everything. You can listen to it for anything. You could be like, I'm going to cook. Uh, I'm going to bake a cake tonight. And you watch that. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to cook the best damn cake you've ever seen. But the movie's terrible, so it doesn't count. But I had to give a shout out to the speech because that is an ultimate. That's a top three chill moment, top three speech. But number 10, I'm going Sandlot. It's just 1993. It's just childhood wrapped up in a bow. 60s baseball worship. The Babe Ruth ball that they lose that he doesn't know the name of the that of Babe Ruth. He's like Baby Ruth. <laughs> and just uh, the interaction and your friends giving you shit. Like you're killing me smalls. And like the friendships with Benny the Jet, the great Hambino, Ham teaching him how to make s'mores. And also, I mean, at the end, the chase with the beast to get the ball. And, you know, he's running all through that out the town on July 4th. And he's wearing his PF flyers. I want some PF flyers. Give me some of those. Just nostalgia of childhood, playing with your friends. Just those close relationships and things meaning more than than they really did at that time. Just the life being more important than you thought it was. And, I mean, like wondering peppercorn at the pool. I mean, that's just, that's an iconic moment too. Although it probably hasn't aged well. But they got married and had nine kids. So it's okay. But just a fun movie. I, mean, I just want to start off with, you know, playing baseball in the 60s and tight jeans and converses with your friends. That just seems like fun. I don't know. It just brought me back. Number nine, going Caddyshack. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's really a sports movie. I mean, it takes place on a golf course, but just seeing Rodney Dangerfield rip off lines and have a futuristic golf bag and <laughs> having Chevy Chase's Ty Webb just with $70,000 checks lying around and just be like, do you take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. Good. Just Great line. I mean, Bill, him and Bill Murray just riffing on each other. And, and I mean, it's just a really silly, irrelevant movie. And it's clearly improvised. It's not even really a movie. It's just improv scene after improv scene after improv scene. But I laugh my ass off every time. And it's based on sports. Like at the end, there's a competition for what? I think 40 grand for uh, Ty Webb and, uh, you know, 
it, it's like for the sake of the it's for it's for Danny's college career, I believe, or something like that. But it doesn't matter. Who cares? It's just a funny, funny movie. So, and it's a golf movie. Everyone, you know, everyone quotes Caddyshack when they're uh, when they're on the golf course. It's like Noonan. You know, what I mean that that happens. So, yeah, I don't care what you think. Well, I clearly I care because I'm a little nervous. But yeah, that's my number nine. Number eight, Replacements, two thousand, unbelievable movie, lovable losers, second chances. And just one glorious moment before fading away. What a great motif for a movie. Like Gene Hackman is just perfect as the coach. Jimmy McGinty. What a great coach. Jimmy McGinty. It's like Vince Lombardi and Jimmy McGinty. They sound together. He's got the little like straw hat and he's got the paper in his hand. He's wearing the tweed jacket and the little like knowing mustache and just seems smarter than everyone. But you can tell he's kind of a individualist and like whatever the owners give him shit. He's just like, you told me you wouldn't get my way. And you know, that kind of stuff. Just fantastic gene hackman doesn't usually play in like b-level movies so he really elevates the script and keanu reeves is playing a washed up ohio state quarterback again like he, he already did it with johnny utah and now he gets to do it with shane falco what a great name too shane falco oh my god and he's got the great kind of flowing hair he's working on a houseboat and like he's washed up his career is over and he gets this one chance you know to, to gleam as the uh as the players are on strike. So these are like the strike players. And I mean, just fun movie. Uh, like there's a dance scene with uh, I Will Survive where all the players are dancing. I love when fat guys dance. So it's like the whole offensive line is dancing pretty majestically to I Will Survive, the disco song. And just a fun array of uh, array of characters. You got a gambling addicted kicker who's kind of, who's from Ireland, I believe. You got a sumo wrestler playing offensive line, which Jimmy McGinty, it makes you realize how brilliant he is. They're like, really? A, a sumo wrestler? And he goes, they're experts at pushing people around. It's like, of course they are. That makes complete sense. Complete, complete sense. And you got a DEA agent, John Favre, who's just ripped and juiced and crazy and kind of is that like gung-ho cop. And it's so weird because, you know, he directed Iron Man. He's directing The Mandalorian right now. He's probably like the biggest director in all of Hollywood. And seeing him as a, just a fired up linebacker who's just juiced and wants to kill the other person. It's just fun to see. So, and you got Roy from The Office randomly too. Best looking he'll ever be as Brian Murphy, a deaf tight end who would have been in the first round, but he's deaf. What a fun twist. I, they clearly had so much fun making these characters. And by the end of the movie, you care, even though it's just like they're just trying to win a game to get their team to the playoffs, even though they're not going to play because the scab, the uh, the players on strike are going to come back. And just great Keanu Reeves speech at the end. And he gets the girl too. And I just love the speech so much. Oh my God. Let me see if I can do it. All right, it's... uh. Pain heals, chick dig, chicks dig scars, glory lasts forever. Just like a haiku poem of broness. And like I said, funny, silly. I don't know. I saw that in theaters and I walked out. And I was like, that was way better than I thought it was going to be. So it's up there. It's there for me. It's number eight. Seven, going to the natural. 1984, Barry Levinson movie. Also made Rain Man. Barry Levinson killed it in the 80s. He just he just made good classic movies. Like these movies felt like they could have been in the 60s or 70s. And it's Robert Redford, classic washed up player, giving it one last go. Clearly there's a theme that I'm enjoying here. <laughs> He's playing Roy Hobbs. It's like the craziest story ever, but it's told in a fairy tale way. So it makes it not believable, but you're just along for the ride. Like He's shot in the shoulder in his youth by a murderous athlete killer in the 1930s. And it kind of ruins his baseball career. And finally, it just flashes 16 years later. 
And he's finally in his mid thirties, which is a joke. Cause Robert Redford's like 46 at this time. And he's given it one last go in the pros. And he's got this bat called wonder boy. That's, you know, uh, a lightning lightning hit a tree that was near his house when he was a kid. And he carved the bat out of, out of the wood himself, just like, just lore like that. I mean, just baseball just lends itself to romanticism like that. He's got a bullet in his stomach from when the girl shot him and it's a silver bullet, which is for Wolver for werewolves, I think, but who knows why, but makes it more kind of ups the stakes and he could die at any point. Cause the bullet might rip through his stomach at the end. You find out. And apparently I guess the book that this is based on was based on Homer's odyssey. You know, the Greek mythology stuff wild. I mean, it makes, it makes complete sense because I mean, there's crazy stuff like bump Bailey, who's a random uh, player on the team dies while running into a wall. And you're like, Oh my God, I'm like what I'm watching a baseball movie. How could people just die? Or Roy could die on his last bat. Or, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's just, it's, I'm at a, I'm at a loss for words because it's so freaking crazy. And uh, the last scene, Oh my God. One of the best last scenes, like talk about chill scenes when his bat gets broken in half. Finally, wonder boy gets broken. And the little bot bat boy, Roy just looks at him confidently and goes, pick me out a winner, Bobby. And Bobby made his own bat and you're starting to tear up and oh my God. And then he hits a home run and smashes the lights and that majestic music comes on and they surround him around the plate. And oh my God. I mean, it's a long movie. It's two hours, 17 minutes, I think. And it's a little fatty in some areas, but I mean, the baseball stuff's great. I guess he bases swing on Ted Williams. So it looks legit too. And Wolford Brimley and any movie, I love him as pops. Apparently pops is based on Zeus in the Greek mythology. He's supposed to be like, the father that is kind of not giving you the, you know, attention you need, or he's like a godlike figure. And when he finally at the end <laughs> tells Roy, who he's given a hard time to the whole time, he goes, you're the best damn hitter I've ever seen. And Redford, who doesn't smile pretty much the whole movie, just gives this bright smile, like the sun shining on him. And you're like, mm, relationship, you know, I mean, I, I feel this, this is a good bro ship. And I mean, just fun moments, like there's, in Roy's first at bat, he rips the skin clean off the ball, which has never happened in real baseball. I mean, that's, that's just the stuff of lore. And like I said, the last homer breaks the lights, pile up at home plate, majestic mu- music, just mwah, perfect ending. Just a great emotional classic. Like that movie could have been made anytime between 1940 and 2000 before we got like jaded about baseball. Just love it. Six, I'm going all the right moves. 1983 movie. It's Perfect for young high school Tom Cruise, who's just this intense quarter cornerback who can't really run. It's pretty funny. Uh, you can tell he's like, he's in shape, but he's not an athlete. He kind of runs kind of bow-legged and weird, but he's trying really hard. And his Tom Cruise kind of cute little run. Pretty funny. Name of him, the name of the character is impossible. I'm going to try it. Stefan Jorkovich or something like that. And it's basically, you know, hard scrabble, Pennsylvania mining town, where it's impossible to get out and football's Tom Cruise's only way. He doesn't have the grades. Otherwise he's got like bees, but he wants to be an engineer. And, you know, he has got dreams about being something more than in this place. And he, but his mouth gets him in trouble. And I mean, the, I God, I mean, the football scenes are really intense. You can definitely tell that football matters to the small Pennsylvania town, this great locker room camaraderie. And just, I mean, like the football scenes are bone crunching and good cast too. Like Chris Penn is his linebacker buddy with the full ride to USC, but he knocks up his high school sweetheart and it's like, will he stay and just get married? And that's kind of how the town sucks you in. And I mean, it's really, I don't know. I feel, I feel like lived in, like, I feel like I know this place where, you know, everyone takes football too seriously. There's just dead end jobs and the mines are shutting down. 
it's just like Americana kind of a status kind of that uh, when people are leaving the shanty towns and whatnot. But uh, also Craig T. Nelson as a coach, really good, really intense. And I like that Craig T. Nelson as a coach and Tom Cruise, they both have flaws and they both kind of admitted to each other at the end. Like the movie's not really about football. It's more about learning from each other, learning to apologize and be honest with each other. And they kind of both get to what they want in the end by being honest. So I'd love that. Like the football ends probably three fourths of the way through the movie, which is nice because I mean, it's not just about football. It's about the life around it. And like the high school parties and I don't know, just everything. I mean, the guy who filmed this, the, the director was the director of photography for Martin Scorsese through the late seventies and early eighties. And you can tell like, it's way, way overshot in a good way. I'm saying like this, it's like if you had Steven Spielberg direct your music video, you're like, wow, why is this music video fantastic? Well, fucking Steven Spielberg directed it. So he clearly had an eye for this stuff and I just love it. And Tom Cruise, just being intense, being arrogant, being kind of over the top and young, just fun. I just love it. I definitely go see it. Uh, five, I'm going Moneyball, 2011. It's a movie story about Billy Bean, the GM of the Oakland A's and how he kind of revolutionized baseball by going more into analytics and stats and numbers and like walks are just good as hits and you know stop judging people it's like well he's got an ugly girlfriend so that's why we shouldn't draft him it's like no no no. like look at the math don't worry about like confidence and stuff like that you know and it's an Aaron Sorkin script love Aaron Sorkin you know feel good intelligence always prevails that kind of stuff Brad Pitt probably his most handsome you know mid-40s loves working out arrogant guy but he's willing to change course and willing to kind of be a revolutionary. And I just love it. Jonah Hill is Peter Brand, the analytics nerd. Just, I mean, Jonah Hill can really act like, you know, you see him as the fat kid from super bad. It was funny, but him in this and Wolf of wall street, he's just, he's got a and maniac too. the show. He's got the good kind of subdued, sad quality to him when he wants to be. And just great filmmaking made me care about a team that didn't win anything historically, just a 20 game win streak midway through a year, but it made it feel important. It's just, you know, seeing Pitt being cocky, willing to change his strategy. You're just rooting for them the whole time. You're like, yeah, you can do it, guys. And also, I mean, talk about the chill scenes. When Peter shows Billy the fat catcher's uh, home run scene, he's showing him this minor league catcher who's, you know, 240, 250 pounds and clearly overweight. And he hits the ball and he's rounding first and he never rounds second. Like he doesn't go for second. And because he's, you know, he's fat, he's uncoordinated and he falls over and he's like, oh, this is humiliating. This is all my worst nightmares coming true. And he like crawls back to first base, but the first baseman taps him. He's like, no, 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 you, you hit the ball out of the park <laughs> and he hit a home run. And he didn't even know it. And I'm still, I'm getting teary eyed right now. And that's Peter's trying to relay to Billy. It's like, Hey, I know you think you didn't win anything, but you changed the game of baseball. Like you got to look up and see you hit a home run. Like you, you're running back to first right now, but you, you're going to clear the bases. <sighs> cry every time and his love for his daughter super cute she's also a daughter from californication she has an acoustic song that she makes for her dad and it just kills me every time that, that you're such a loser dad just at the end when he's in his truck and he decides to stay home with his kids oh love it so good all right for a little levity we're going number four we're going happy gilmore hilarious stupid best adam sandler movie ever great golf movie too great premise like taking a new school person who's violent loud young and taking over a traditional game that's more refined like it's i'm trying to think of a good analogy i like if alan iverson took over tennis kind of thing i mean that was how it would be it's always interesting they should make more movies about that 
And it's just such a funny, silly comedy. Like him fighting Bob Barker, you know, the Price is Right guy, slays me every time. I guess Bob Barker was a fighter back in the day, a boxer. So if you look at his form, you can tell he's like, he's using his hips and punching through. And the, the punches, he's like snapping him. Like he's beating the crap out of Adam, Adam Sandler. It's a 75-year-old. Just so great. Adam Sandler fighting with an alligator, you know, wearing hockey jerseys, screaming at the top of his lungs. Adam Sandler is the best when he's just kind of, an angry, lovable psychopath like this and Billy Madison. And you got Carl Weathers as Chubbs, you know, his uh, his uh, mentor. It's all in the hips. <laughs> and the last hole as like a mini golf court shot. Oh, my God. So much fun. It's like, Happy look out when his girlfriend yells that. Love it. I don't know why, but when she yells that, it's just something about her voice. I'll always remember that. And Shooter McGavin, the villain, the best sports villain ever. Christopher McDonald, McDonald just kind of has that old school you know, white country club golfer who just likes to shit on everyone around him. And I love you eat pieces of shit for breakfast. No, <laughs> just so good. Sandler golf shot when he's just winding up and kind of can just smack the ball 400 yards. It always seemed realistic. Like everyone tried to do that at some point in their life. I've gone to a golfing range and tried to do it. It's impossible. It's like, but Sandler makes it look real. And like I said, he's just a lovable, lovable psychopath just trying to help his grandma get her house back. And also I'll go to your home you know, with the ball. It's like, that's, everyone said that at some point in their life when they're playing golf. So it's iconic. I love it. And speaking of iconic, number three, I got the best of the Rockies. Is it Rocky one? No, no, no. Too long. Too much of a movie. Rocky two. Also, also too long. Also too much of a real movie. Rocky three. Okay. We're getting warmer, getting warmer. A little clubber Lang, you know, little thunder lips, little movie montage stuff. Eye of the tiger. Okay. That's pretty close. Rocky five. <clears throat> No, 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 that's garbage. It wasn't even a fight in a boxing ring. They fought in the streets, him and Tommy Gunn with his blonde mullet. No, no, that's not how it works. Rocky Four is the best Rocky. It's not even a movie, okay? It's 91 minutes, and someone did the math. It's 31.9% montages. That's insane. There's only 68.1% of the movie that's not montage. It's basically a music video. And Drago being the Russian boxer, coolest boxer ever, Six foot five, chiseled muzzle, muscle, Dolph Lundgren has six lines of English in the entire movie. If he dies, he dies. Just fantastic. Apollo dying, Apollo Creed dying in the ring. That's crazy. But it like brought stakes to it too. And like, you know, had Rocky had to go to Russia and he had to train really hard. And when they're playing Hearts on Fire and he's doing his crazy ab workout and lifting kind of medieval weights and climbing a 20,000 foot mountain in a light coat. I mean, that's just, it fires you up every time. You want to go out and, you know, run through a wall. And I love that at the end, he solves the Cold War by boxing. <laughs> like, that's how it is. He's just, he's so inspirational that Russia just like, eh, I guess, you know, we're in the Cold War. <laughs> and just amazing. I mean, crazy stuff too. Polly has a robot girlfriend, which makes no sense. I mean, that's actually like a serious plot point. Polly's probably the worst character in all sports. Just like the drunk, jealous brother that just, <laughs> that just, is there. I don't know. But he has one or two speeches that get me too. I'll cry during a Pauly speech when he's like, I love you, Rock. And I'm like, yeah, I love you too, Rock. And there's like a long driving montage for no reason, recapping the movie so far halfway through in case we forgot what happened. And the beginning of the movie is just a trailer of what happened in Rocky 3. Like, I God, I can't imagine how this movie got made. Movie's insane. Turn your brain off. Love it. And fun fact, Sly Stallone almost died filming this. His heart swelled intensely from when Dolph Lundgren punched him because they decided to do real punches in the movie. I guess Dolph hit him so hard that his heart started swelling and they needed to take like three weeks off the movie. So don't have Dolph Lundgren punch you. It'll, it'll be dangerous. So Rocky Four, awesome. 
could be number one on another day, honestly. Number two, Friday Night Lights. I cry every freaking time I watch this. Probably seen this more than another sports movie. True story of 1988, West Texas, Permian football team. And Booby Miles, their star player, gets hurt. Team rallies, inspirational, you know, a team that shouldn't be in the finals ends up being in the Texas championship finals. Just shows how important football is to these small towns where they don't really have much going. And it's just like their their lifeblood is through the team. And it's just Peter Berg's directing. It's just a sepia-toned, you know, chiseled jaw, put it all out on the field, inspirational vibes, just a sad, desolate area of Texas, beautifully shot. And I mean, Billy Bob Thornton as the coach, Billy Bob's usually kind of a weirdo in this movie. He's just inspirational and put together and spiritual. And it's like, you want to follow this guy in a battle. He just seems like he's going like golly G and G whiz and he cares about his players. And I don't know, just probably the best Billy Bob performance outside of Armageddon. He's fantastic in Armageddon, but I guess that shows like when Billy Bob really puts it together and is more of a refined character, it's a lot more fun. And the, the soundtrack is explosions in the sky. If you've never listened to them, go right now to Spotify and listen to explosions in the sky. Listen to the song six minutes at the bottom of the ocean. It's just this lonely, stunning, perfect kind of twang guitar with no dialogue. I mean, with no lyrics and they're from Texas. So it's like, they clearly have a vibe of what it's like down there. And it just, it's hypnotic and beautiful. And you just want to like lay out and contemplate your life. You want to take like a warm bath and think about your life. And the last 20 minutes of the movie, the second half of the Texas championship game against Dallas Carter, it's the best 20 minutes plus of a sports movie ever. Like the tackling's brutal. You can't believe this is this actually happened because based on a true story, how they came inches away from winning, but didn't, you know, there was penalties. There was, you know, huge plays and dramatic stuff that you couldn't make up you know, third down stops, fourth down stops. I mean, just, I mean, it's crazy. Like they got stopped at like the one inch line and oh my God. And like the way, like Mike, the quarterback clearly had a concussion and they had him play through it. One Billingsley gets his shoulder popped out of his uh, socket and they need a running back. <laughs> and I'll never forget this. He's like on the sideline and the trainer's like, are you ready? He goes, yeah. And then you hear this crunch and he's, he gets his shoulder back into place and just screams ah, and moves back into the game. And you're like, oh my God. These are like gladiators. See, that's what any given Sunday failed to do. It's like, you got to show them as gladiators. You can't just give me like quick cuts and like make me think they're gladiators. Show them in the moment being gladiators. And Billingsley, you are a gladiator. Love the movie. Last 20 minutes. If I need last 20 minutes on a treadmill or a Stairmaster or something, that's the 20 minutes I would hit for me to get pumped up. Love it. Maybe I'll probably watch it tonight. Oh my God, so good. Actually, I'm watching Delta Force tonight. So that's a little different, but inspiring in a different way. And number one. Uh, this is definitely my choice and no one else's, but Vision Quest. Love it. Only high school wrestler movie ever. And I'm not a wrestler or anything like that, but there's just something inspiring and weird and unique about this movie. Uh, it's about Loudon Swain, who's a country boy in rural Washington state, moving down from 190 pounds to 168 pounds as in his senior year of high school to battle the best wrestler in the state, Shoot. What a great name too. It's just named Shoot. And when you see him, he's just... Uh, He's carrying a log up and down stairs of a stadium. You're like, oh man, he's in trouble. Shoot is just ripped. And Matthew Modine as Loudon is just so curious and intelligent and marches to his own drum. Like he's wearing a sweatsuit the whole time. He's just, he wants to be an astronaut. He wants to be a doctor. He's curious about female anatomy. He always says what he feels. He's just very in tune with himself. He seems kind of like, I don't know. I'm trying to think like pink maybe from Dazed and Confused. You know, I mean, just that kind of, 
guy, jack of all trades. Like he's in tune with himself, but he's also an athlete and you're never sure where he's going. I've never seen a character that is just kind of more focused about his internal scoreboard than anything else. Like he wants to do this to test himself. He could stay at 190 and get the college scholarship he needs. He's like, I want to test myself and go against the best, even though I'm getting nosebleeds, even though I'm passing out, even the team, even though the team and the coach disagree with me, he doesn't care. And like I said, he's studying to be a doctor, an astronaut or something. And he's working nights at a hotel randomly on the side. And he falls in love with a 21-year-old vagabond girl, Linda Florentine, in her first role. Just a fun, weird dynamic. Like, how does that ever happen that a woman they found on the street just comes home with them? And he actually starts dating her. It's like bizarre. And she takes his virginity. Really weird. I mean, the movie is weird to say out loud. And finally, what really brought this movie together, unexpected moment in this movie, the chill moment. It's not actually during the fight. It's the Elmo speech. Now, if you haven't seen this movie before, the Elmo speech, Elmo is the short order cook at the hotel that Loudon's working at. And they're just friends. They arm wrestle. He's kind of a sounding board for Loudon during the whole time. They, he's kind of a drunk, but you can tell he's like a career short order cook, but good guy, but probably down on his luck kind of guy. And when he gives a speech at the end, a ball like a baby. So Loudon is about to have his big match with shoot. And he's thinking about not doing it because him and Linda Florentine broke up and he's just kind of out of sorts. He's not sure if he's going to do it. And he goes to Elmo's apartment to tell him, Hey, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wrestle. So, you know, don't bother coming. And Elmo is getting, he's in the saddest little apartment. He's having, he has like a little bottle of whiskey or schnapps on the, on the dresser. He's got like the little cuts on his face from shaving for the first time in a while. He's putting on his one kind of sad suit and he's, telling Loudon, he gives Loudon the speech about when he saw Pele for the first time on his black and white TV and how, no, he didn't understand soccer. He didn't really know who Pele, Pele was, but sports just transported him. He just saw that guy do a bicycle kick. And he's like, this guy is the same species as me. And he's just the epitome of glory and fun. And he like transported me to another place. And you know, Loudon says to him, it's like only loud, only a six lousy minutes on the mat. And Elmo kind of fires back. It's like, it's not about the six minutes. It's what happens in those six minutes? And it's probably the most lived in speech. It feels like a speech Elmo would give. Like, of course, he'd watch TV on a sad black and white. And Pele wouldn't really translate to him. But the glory of sports and watching someone just so good at what they do really kind of just resonated with him. And it resonates with Loudon. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go try this because, you know, you made me believe in the power of sports and it makes me want to run through a brick wall. I just love it. There's power of sports. Whew, man, I'm, I'm fired up just because of all this stuff. Like just so many chill moments going through my brain right now. I probably won't be able to sleep tonight, but these are my 10 sports movies and they're definitely not the 10 best sports movies ever by the normal metrics, but I don't care because these are my metrics and this is max volume. And this is, this is where we kind of get, get weird with it. And Vision Quest is the best movie ever. Plus there's Journey in it too. They played Journey. And Madonna is just playing in a club at like age 22 too. So that's awesome. So thank you, Loudon. Thank you, sports movies. And thank you, Al Pacino, for giving me that speech on any given Sunday. Later.